Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, award-winning health expert Nicole Kerr, has appeared on CNN, PBS, CBS, ABC, and the Food Channel to share her perspectives on wellness, lifestyle, and nutrition. For the past 30 years, Nicole has worked for the Centers for Disease Control, the American Cancer Society, U.S. Air Force Medical Operations, and the University of Hawaii. Her success came despite a tragic car accident at age 19 when she was a cadet at the United States Air Force Academy. It forced her to learn how to live differently through the spiritually transformative experience of a repressed near-death experience. Her memory of the NDE came back 20 years later, and it has taken Nicole almost another two decades to align her soul, spirit, mind, and body as a result. A disabled veteran, Nicole today maintains a private practice primarily using neuro-emotional technique to target the domains of emotional energy and spiritual well-being. She tells the story in her book, You Are Deathless. Nicole, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you so much, Lee. I'm delighted and grateful to be here today, and Happy New Year. Oh, happy new year to you. Uh, yeah, this is lovely. And this is a very unique experience, I think, that uh, may benefit a lot of people that I were uh, unaware of. Um, Nicole, there, there are lots of experiencers who take 20 years to talk about their NDEs, but few I've met who repressed their NDEs from their own memories for 20 years, as you did. You describe in your book how you grew up with a religiously conservative, controlling military father And it was only to please your father that you went to the Air Force Academy. But then your dad blamed you for the terrible auto accident you suffered as a cadet, even though you weren't driving and it was not your fault. Still, you blamed yourself because your father blamed you. Could you have repressed the memory of your NDE because it conflicted so severely with your parents' guilt tripping and strict religious beliefs? Oh, I'm sure that that's probably a part of it. I think it's uh, multi-layered. Um, mm. What I do know about repressed memories is the body has to feel safe in order for those memories to, to surface. And safety was my main concern after the wreck. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I, I became very controlling as a result of that and wanted to make sure that I was driving, that, you know, I didn't drink or whatever the circumstances were. I lived a really um, contained kind of lifestyle where I try to really minimize my risk of ever being put back in a situation like that again. So I think my body just was like on lockdown and I had to go through, it's kind of like in a boat where they go through a channel and there are lots of locks. I had to go through and open up a lot of locks on a lot of different layers of my life in order for the memory to become safe enough to come up because what I remembered was horrific. And if I remembered it all at once, or if I remembered it 
I think uh, back then, I think I probably would have wound up in a psychiatric hospital um, because it really has taken me this long to understand on all levels to get aligned with it and what it really meant for me to cross over to the other side to believe my own memory. I think that's another thing in our society is we get taught um, with memories, you know, whether they're sexual memory, abuse memories, or even NDEs that, well, it's your memory. How can you be sure? You know, it's that kind of stuff. And you're having to depend on what you believe, see, feel in your body and experience to just trust that, which is the absolute opposite of science. Although science is starting to come on board with NDEs and starting to align with the fact that they do happen. Yes, fortunately. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something you may not have done before, and that is to tell our audience about the accident and then tell the NDE as you're telling the story. In other words, incorporate the two together, even though they were 20 years apart in your memory banks, put it together as one story. Okay. And I will tell you, I do have the medical reports. I did interview the EMT, the nurse, and the surgeon back in 2008. So 25 years later, I went and got transcripts of their memories of what happened. I have the district attorney report. So I have a lot of evidence Mm -hmm. to put the put the story together plus my memory. So here we go. So 19 years old, uh, I'm a uh, second degree, I mean, a third degree, which is a sophomore at the United States Air Force Academy. Um, my soul did not want to be there. I am not uh, military oriented. I truly, like you said, went there to please my father. And I had a hellacious first year because I just was not an athlete. I wasn't geared to that, but I made it through. I persevered. And so the beginning of the sophomore year, we had a squadron function that was mandatory. I arrived late in the afternoon. And um, as it was ending, it was uh, like a beer ball game. So the Air Force supplied alcohol to the cadets and I had gotten there late. So I had nothing to drink. Um, my dad's rules were no alcohol, no smoking and no dating uh, upperclassmen. So uh, I asked a guy who was, we were the last to leave. I said, do you mind if I get a ride back with you back to the Academy? And he said, no, come on. And he had a Corvette convertible. It was red. And so yeah. uh, <laughs> I was, I was going to be like a hot, hot chicken that. So uh, he wanted to stop at a bar on the way back. And I was concerned about us getting back on time because we have curfews in the military. And uh, it was a Sunday night and seven thirty-five. we were supposed to report back in. And he had two beers. He uh, offered me two beers. And so I thought I'm going to have some fun here. And I had two beers as well and a cigarette, uh, first cigarette. uh, And then um, I remember the bartender asking him, are you okay to drive? And he said, yes. We got back in the uh, Corvette and he said, well, now I want to stop and watch the sunset over the Rocky Mountains because Colorado Springs is, is right there at the Rocky Mountains. And then I started thinking, I think he's got a whole different agenda going on here because we're not going right back to the academy. So um, so actually he wanted to make out. And I was just like, oh, so I said, we got to get back. So he got back on the road. And the last thing that I remembered was getting back on the road. 
Now, what happened was he tried to make a sexual pass at me. He tried to grab my crotch and I said no. And he got mad at me and he turned the wheel really fast and he was speeding. And the back end of the Corvette came out, spun around and hit a huge boulder, moved the boulder, flipped the car over, landed on its top, didn't have seatbelts back then. We were both thrown out of the vehicle. Um, I was thrown into a ditch and he was, uh, I think, thrown uh, just a couple of feet from the car. So then it was nearby uh, a house. There wasn't much out there. This is in Black Forest uh, Park area. And they heard the impact and these people in the house came out and looked at us and couldn't get any vitals on me. So they went back and got a blanket, covered me up, called 911. Uh, EMS volunteer fire department got there within 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. And when they uh, took a look at me, they, uh, the guy, they were like, she's dead. You don't even need to bother looking at her. And one guy, John Hartling, he said, uh, nobody tells me what to do. I, you know, I'm the one uh, that makes the, the call on these kind of things. So he took the blanket off and he understood why they thought I was dead. He couldn't get any vitals out of me. So he did this thing called a sternal knuckle press, uh, mm. which if you've had that done is extremely painful, which is what it's designed to do to elicit a pain response. So my right pupil flickered and dilated. That was the entire amount of life he got out of that. And I believe at that moment, my soul came back into my body. Uh, my spirit did before it had completely flown out. Okay. And so uh, at that moment, he could start getting a blood pressure. It was 60 over zero. So you can see why he thought, everybody thought that I was dead. Um, I was bleeding from the bones, which is, means I was in extreme shock. And they got me to, uh, they got me on the ambulance to put, mask pants on me to push up all the blood that I did have left into my vital organs. And uh, they did CPR on me the entire way to the nearest community hospital. Uh, they had no idea that I was a cadet because I was in civilian clothes. And then um, that night, the head surgeon on call happened to be a female, uh, Dr. Amy Lou Stewart, who was the first female surgeon in Colorado Springs, the first female uh, medical student at Philadelphia um, Jefferson Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. So she was a maverick and she basically just said we were trying to make sure you didn't expire again that night. So uh, they they were able to get my fluids back in, get me stable and then it was a rocky road for the next four months in the hospital. right now, that moment between the time you got into the Corvette and it was fishtailing, I guess. Yes. You have the memory of that. You have a memory of your screaming and then you have the memory of your soul leaving your body. So tell us that sequence. Yeah. And I write about it in the book. It's like, when the memory came back, I was working at the CDC in Atlanta and I just left Starbucks and was going to work. And all of a sudden, clear as day, I could remember sitting in the car with my right leg up on the dashboard and my left leg folded over. So um, I'm 
I'm, I'm just going to read this little snippet because it really does describe it. I am spinning around insanely fast, like those tilt-a-wheel carnival rides. Grabbing the side of the car door, I scream as my side of the car smashes head-on into something. What is it? I realize I can't stop anything, and my voice fades. I fly out of my seat, through the windshield, around me, glasses shattering like splatter paint. I feel pieces of it cutting into my thighs and legs. God, this hurts. And then something slices my left foot. Bad. I try to shield my face with my hand, my mouth wide open under it. Then I'm in the air for what feels like forever. When I finally hit the ground, I understand that I am going to die. My mind freezes. I scream, oh my God, help me. Then I have one final thought. I'm not going to make it. Okay, so when I got thrown butt up through the windshield, that's where the predominant amount of my energies uh, injuries came from. Broke my pelvis, my foot was amputated, um, lots of lots of um, uh, lacerations uh, in the inside of my uh, the, the whole pelvic area. But when I flew out, I got up in the air, and what felt like a long time was when my soul flew out. So I got stopped there in the memory and um, my chiropractor whose office I had gone to instead of going to work, told me to go home and rest. And the rest of the memory came back that night. And what happened was um, I was in the book. I talk about it as Casper, the ghost. It's like Casper, the ghost came up and lifted, (laughs) lifted me up. And it was a male. I've always known it's a male. And uh, we went up to a different dimension, a different level, whatever you want to call it. And there were other Caspers, uh, spirits, uh, angels, uh, forms. uh, They were around like um, different energies and they could all communicate to each other. And it wasn't like we were all speaking English, but I heard there was two next to me and I heard their conversation and they said that we need to ask for help from the spiritual dimension, from the angelic realm. Um, We need to ask for help and that that is a reminder to us to do that. They will help us if we ask, but only if we ask, unless it's an emergency. And the reason for that is because of something called free will. And I think we forget that a lot, Lee, to ask for help. You know, we get going on our own, things are going right. And then when things don't go right, then we ask for help. But it's that reminder to ask for help in all things. In your book, you say, I think this begins with a, there was a deep voice that called you was that your Casper the Friendly Ghost or was that something else? Yes, yes. Well, I now know what it is, but it's amazing how stuff is still <laughs> coming up for me, you know, even though uh, the book just came out four months ago. Uh, it came out in August and who I know now was the the spirit, the guide. It was actually my angel. It was my grandfather on my father's side. And he was in his 30s, around 33 years old. Uh, it was a younger version. And it's interesting because I'm 58 years old and he died at 58 and he died at the end of August and my accident was at the end of August. So he came to me during one of my meditations and told me that he was the one that came down and picked me up and took me upwards because and he came in an angel form because he knew I would recognize that and feel safe. And I did. I felt like um, 
I was, uh, I was like in a, a chrysalis or just like, you know, floating in outer space. It was bliss beyond bliss. I think a lot of us have trouble putting into words what really uh, it feels like because it, it's just more of this energy. And I think that is uh, this sense of no pain and suffering and you are one with God. God is one with you. It is just uh, colors beyond imagination, music. It's just, it, it's amazing. And um, and so he let me know that this this August. And so that makes sense to me now because I I, I swore it was a male. I knew I, I knew the pieces. I just didn't know it was him. Do you suppose he was the one that came to help you because uh, he was feeling bad about how his son, your father, was treating you? Yeah. And I think he saw all the abuse that I was putting up with, not only from my father, but at the academy. I mean, as a freshman or duly coming in, uh, it's mental abuse, it's physical abuse, it's emotional abuse. And for most women and some men, it's sexual abuse. And I endured all that. And, um, you know, my dad, having graduated from there, knew it was going to be abusive. And how could he he want his daughter. I was a model. I was in junior achievement. I did all these things that were like not military to go and, and, and make me a better woman and make me, you know, uh, this person few could rival or whatever. And I'm just like, abuse doesn't do that. You know, uh, it actually instilled more fear in me and more terror and panic and impending doom than anything. And that's how I I ran my life from my amygdala, which is that fight, flight, or fear part, instead of my prefrontal cortex, which is where you make your, you know, intellectual decisions. Now you heard the voices, and I'm going to say they're angels saying mm-hmm. uh, that humans have to ask for their help. That they weren't asking for help themselves; they were right. giving you a message to give to us, basically. Right. Yes, and then. My angel, my granddad told me that my message was to not fear death. That's what I was going to come back because I didn't want to come back. I was like, no, (laughs) I could I could see myself. I literally could see myself in the ditch. I knew exactly what I was wearing. My, you know, teal striped Azad, my khaki shorts, you know, and I could see my corpse down in the ditch. And I thought. I don't want to get back in that body because I know what's going to happen, pain and suffering and being reduced back to almost an infant and relying on my parents again. And that's exactly what happened. But I was told I needed to go. And this was an important message to get out to people. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, that, that's a big message. How in the world am I supposed to get that out? You know, uh, and what I realized is I was afraid of death at 19 because I still had the concept of God that I was raised with through the Lutheran Church and the Southern Baptist Church, that if you um, didn't follow the rules, if you were bad in some way, shape or form, you uh, that God was separate from you and that you would spend your life in hell or eternity and you would not be forgiven. And so that is the way I died was with that belief system. So no wonder I feared death because I didn't think it was going to happen at 19. In fact, none of us do. We think it's for old people. And yeah. <laughs> we we need to really start changing the narrative on that because 
as you can see, um, it can happen to people at any time, you know, as a child, a teenager, you know, and we need to be prepared for that and start talking to children about the truth about death. It's, you know, in most books written, it's, it's this doom and gloom thing and negative. And that's why I love um, the, I, the International Association of Near-Death Studies came out in 2020 in their annual report with the 10 common lessons of NDEs. And this is all backed up by loads of interviews. And, you know, the first one is we don't die and our soul lives on. And I think that's so important to to tell people because they think once it's over in the physical realm that it's over. Um, and that's just not true. And there's there's nine others and I go through them in the book, but they're all positive. And I want us to focus on that. And I know we're human. And when someone passes that we have the emotions of grief and I want to hold that and honor that, but mm. we also need to look at it in the bigger cosmic picture. Now you, you wrote in your book that you hadn't fully forgotten the NDE in those years after the crash from day one in the hospital. I remembered seeing bright white lights. I so there know. was something there that was probably influencing you know, how profoundly NDEs can change someone's life after they've been there. You didn't remember being there, but tell us a little about what you were up against. I have to tell the audience, you were so incapacitated that you had to go home and be like a little child in your mother's care again. Exactly. I could not walk. I could not use the bathroom on my own. Uh, I was seven weeks in ICU and then, you know, three months, four months total in the hospital. So, uh, the extent of my injuries, I, I wound up with sepsis, gangrene. I mean, I was always a colostomy, you know, I woke up uh. from surgery, I had a colostomy, didn't even know what that was, but I saw my bowels hanging out. And I, the first thing I thought is no guy's going to want to have sex with me because I can't even handle looking at that, you know? So it was just a lot of trauma, you know, mm. it was, I start to get better and then poof, but the white light was always with me. And I remember asking my surgeon much later, I said, was that the operating room lights that I remember? And she said, no, Nicole, you were brought in unconscious. Okay. Uh, and you stayed unconscious for over 12 hours, you know, so it is not that I can confirm that she said, it's something greater than that. And she said, you also had multiple NDEs. It wasn't just the, the scene of the accident where you were dead in essence, but that one you were clinically dead. Um, and the bright white light, it's, it's like a clear light. It's not that, you know, how when somebody does a camera and flashes the bulb and it kind of blinds you or deer in the headlights, it's not that at all. You can keep looking at it. It doesn't blind you at all. And, you know, when you think about white light, it's actually made up of all the colors of the rainbow because it mm -hmm. contains all wavelengths. And that's what I found fascinating is I love color. I mean, in my marriage vows, I took every color of the rainbow and talked about what it is. Red is love, you know, all of these things. And and I had I just wear a lot of color and I'm always uh, my house is painted color colorfully and all of this kind of <laughs> stuff. I love color. And, you know, when Newton founded uh, light, he equated it to music. So if you bring in the music, the color, the white, I mean, and you surround yourself with that, what a 
uh, what I want to say, it just makes you feel so secure and so loved and so uh, comforted, you know, um, it was just beautiful. And I, I, I think that is why we have that experience, you know, to, to tell people it is not going to be scary. It is not going to be something you have to be afraid of. It is love in an energetic form. And I think that's what we need to start shifting to is that love, instead of being an emotion, to look at it, at it as energy. Well, under your parents' care, you probably didn't want to remember your NDE because they would not have approved. In fact, you say they, they've refused even to read your book. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't comport with their idea of what happens when we die. No, uh, I will say uh, they are religious addicts and God bless them. They believe, <laughs> they go to three different churches. I mean, that is the way that they dealt with trauma in their life. And my trauma is by focusing on the literal word of the Bible and who God is. And they do believe that God is dual in terms of loving and compassionate, but also will punish you as punitive and um, judgmental and the wrath of God will come on you. So they still hold that belief. And what I was real clear about coming back is that second part doesn't exist at all with God. God is love period, end of sentence. And, um, you know, it's not some white man up in the sky uh, taking notes about if you're good or bad, you know, uh, and they don't believe uh, that that experience happened with me because it would disrupt their whole uh, belief system and have to get them to start thinking differently. And, you know, I was trying to think who in the Bible had an NDE and I just thought Lazarus was the obvious one, but they see Lazarus as a different situation. Mm. And um, so I think, you know, um, it's hard for many uh, people, including my parents from that generation, to think that people can have these experiences and come back and it not fit what they have been taught their entire life and that they're holding on to is going to happen when they die. And I told him, I said, you guys are be surprised when you get over to the other side, because <laughs> that is not God. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about another lesson from the book, uh, from love is all that matters and the source of all that exists, the source meaning God, God is love and love is all that matters. And so our job here on this planet is to love ourselves and love ourselves unconditionally and and expand that soul love so many religions are rule based rather than love based it's it's really it's really sad because it it separates us rather than uh, joins us together which is what god wants us to to be yeah and that's brothers again, and sisters everyone um, everyone and everything is connected and you know that's where we're at in our country right now we're very divided and it's really sad because like with my accident i didn't care who the paramedic was or the emt or what their belief system was or you know they were there to do the job and they weren't looking at me as uh whether i'm republican or democrat or black or white or any of that they were just there to help save me, you know, and thank mm. God. But it's just really, we have a lot more work to do in terms of 
awakening to the beings that we really are instead of dividing ourselves and judging others and that whole rhetoric. Now, I want to get to the part where you begin to remember, and I want to do that not just for your story, but also to help any people out there who think they might have had an experience, a spiritually transformative or near-death experience, but can't remember it. And one of the things that you found uh, was helping you was the chiropractor working with muscle memory brought back memories of the actual collision itself. Isn't that right? Yes. So Dr. West, who I uh, was my chiropractor, also did body healing. He did a lot uh, in the field of kinesiology. There's uh, memory memory testing. You can do muscle testing. And so he was able to do that to help me uh, confirm and to know that this indeed, uh, my your body holds or there's a book out called Your Body Keeps the Score about trauma. And it does keep it and it stores it in various places in your body. And the Chinese figured this out over 5,000 years ago that with every organ, there's an emotion. So liver is anger, you know, uh, there's uh, every one of them. So if you can get to those emotions, which most of us suppress, and when you have such a trauma the end result is going to be the pain. Okay. And none of us want to feel the pain because we think it is going to kill us when we have to really allow our body to to move through that and to release it and to embody it. And that's what I had not learned to do growing up is I was very much cut off head from the rest of my body. I I use my head to think and, and feel. So I look at the situation and go, I feel angry at the driver, but my body didn't connect to the feeling. It was all in my head and that doesn't work. You've got to embody it. So that has been part of my journey using different modalities, uh, neuroemotional technique. There's EF, uh, the tapping EMDR. There's several that are out there now to help people with that um, biofeedback. And I think that that is what has been helping me get through it is to realize that I really, my, especially in the military, you're not taught to feel. They don't want you to. They want you to be black and white. It's either yes or no, sir, no excuse, sir. You know, they want you to, 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 to not have that latitude of feelings because that gets in the way of performance. And the, the whole mission of the military is to protect and defend. But so so they they work the feeling part out of you, so to speak. Right. And, and, and it's sad because most uh, a lot of military people have trouble in their relationships because they can't be allow themselves to be emotive and to express their emotions. So yeah. that has taken me uh, a good eight years to work through. Uh, it's like a haunted house. Every door I would open would be another emotion. And then even this May, um, I found my roommate after 38 years, there were four of us that went in and she, we did a Zoom call and I had not spoken to her in 38 years. And the first time she saw me on the Zoom with the two other roommates, she said, Nicole, I'm so sorry. And I said, for what? And she said, I caused your crash. And I said, what do you mean you caused it? He did. He was drunk and driving. And she said, no, you asked me for a ride back to the academy before at the beginning of the day. And I said, yes, I would take you back. And then 
the guy that I wound up going back with, he was drunk and he, I drove him back and I really liked him and I wanted to be alone with him. So when you asked me again that night, I said, no, there's another guy over there. He can get you back and go have some fun. And I said, but he's been drinking. And she said to me, well, they've all been drinking. And um, she said, you know, I'll see you back at the academy. And she didn't, you know, she didn't know we were going to stop at a bar and do all this other stuff. So she, she resigned from the Air Force Academy in December and never told a soul until that time uh, in May. And I was just, I was shocked. I didn't remember any of that planning ahead, knowing he was drinking, knowing, uh, you know, I just thought, okay, I'm going to go along and have some fun for once. And boy, did I get zapped. So, so my body went into this, you can't have fun anymore. You better protect yourself when you're in fun situations. Don't allow yourself to cross over. There was a line and you can't cross over it. So I just really went on, on lockdown on that. And she said, it's haunted her to this day that that happened and our lives would have been totally different if she would have just let me in the car and driven me back. Mm. You said that in your book that I think that even the memory of this, the driver's sexual advance was repressed until your memory started to come back. That's exactly right. And I was in therapy for a long time. Yeah, and and you, you say my relationships with men have been terrible <laughs> since yeah. that accident. I, you can see why. Yeah, well, I was, I'm a people pleaser. You know, it started really early on. And uh, let me say that I'm a recovering people pleaser. OK, because Good. that <laughs> that identity does not serve me or anybody else. Well, when taken to an extreme and that's what I had done with it is I wanted people's approval and to like me. So I would try to please them. And that's what I did with guys. It was all about pleasing them and fearing their anger if I did something that they didn't like. So uh, I could never put the piece together of why I was scared of their anger. And now I, I, as soon as that came up and resolved, it took me dating one guy. And then I met at 38, 39 years old, I met my now husband who yeah. is amazing and uh, had been waiting for me in Hawaii. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, it, it's these kind of repressed memories that you don't understand why you're, you're playing out uh, actions and behaviors and that they're sabotaging you because that really was keeping me from uh, love. And he has taught me so much about compassion with myself and um, just to let go and, and, and just, he's been there for me. You know, he's had my back this entire 18 years and uh, he, I don't want to call him St. Paul cause he's not a saint, but you know, <laughs> he's definitely was put in my life for a specific reason. And I just am so grateful now that, um, that the memory did come up like that, you know, and I also was sexually abused by an uncle at age eight. And that didn't come up until my mid thirties. And I don't talk about that in the book, but when I did tell my parents, you know, they said, well, he's dead now, so we can't ask him. And my mother said, I will, I I always knew he was a pervert. And I'm just like, (laughs) okay, so there's no empathy for me. And I think one of the greatest uh, blessings or gifts from the near-death accident is that I am empathetic, sympathetic, compassionate. I try to be kind and considerate and loving. uh, And they, and to honor people 
when they talk to me. And that's why I put the most important credential of all the letters of the alphabet after my name is BTDT. I've been there, done that. And when <laughs> someone has had these kind of experiences, you know, it's like, okay, they know what I've been through. You know, I know what it's like to have a colostomy. So when other people say, you don't know, I said, yes, I do. You know, mm. I know what it means. I mean, I went into nutrition because I developed an eating disorder uh, three months after I left my mother's care. You know, it was within three months. And for anybody that struggles with an eating disorder, whether it's one end of the scale or the other, anorexic or bulimia, you know, it is a secretive, disease or illness. Um, but at the bottom line, you hate yourself for what you're doing to yourself, whether it's you're, you know, you're binging and you can't stop and you tell yourself you're going to stop and it's not willpower. So, you know, I dealt with that for um, 20 years until I got married and then, um, then it, it just resolved itself. So, you know, I think there's there's so many components as to why my memory didn't come back for so long. Mm -hmm. But this also is divine timingly because I think people are searching for a message um, about death. There are a lot of people passing over right now. Uh, we just went through COVID. It's not completely gone, you know, and there is always... Um, uh, we're all going to die. And I think we need to address the fears because if you're unconsciously scared of death, that directly relates to your concept of who you think God is. Mm. Religion has used fear of death as a tool for controlling people for a long time. I, I, there's a lot of value in religion on the other hand, but I'm just pointing out the fact that if people were not afraid to die because they knew there's a loving God waiting for them, it would change their behavior dramatically and it would improve the life in the world substantially. I want to ask you, were you with the same psychotherapist before and after you remembered your near-death experience? And what did they have to say about that? No, I didn't have the same. Um, okay. I, I moved around a lot. I was uh, every seven years I moved. I see. I don't know why I did that, but I did. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I would think when you did finally have that, was the therapist sympathetic to what you experienced? Yes. Yeah. They, they've, I think they've all been sympathetic. They all can't believe my parents' reaction and, you know, blaming me, especially. And it's, uh, but that's been a hard nut to crack because we have just been. A, that's a belief system, a false belief system, you know, that everything has to be uh, family. Uh, you you can only count on family. Uh, your family will always be there for you. I mean, it was such a part of growing up uh, in the South, you know, the Bible Belt, you've got religion, uh, church was the foundation, but your family, uh, everything centered around family. And to, to kind of have to blow that whole uh uh, belief system up, you know, and realize that God is not a vending machine. Okay. Like we think, you know, and prayer and prayer and prayer, and then it doesn't work out that way. Um, and that's what I got disillusioned with God when I was in basic training, because I was praying, oh my gosh, let, let this get easier. Or let me have, you know, and, and it never did. In fact, it, the abuse got escalated and I'm just like, 
holy, you know, this is not working. And I would go sit in that beautiful chapel. At, if anybody's been to the Air Force Academy, they have a magnificent chapel there. And I just would, you know, go there to not get harassed. It wasn't about God at all. It was just gave me an hour of peace where nobody could get to me. And, um, you know, and it, and so I was searching, but it was, I was searching externally and I never realized that God is internal, you know, and that was a huge part of why I think I wasn't um, in alignment as well, because I kept thinking it was something outside of me. And I was being told that you would try all these different churches. And it was kind of the same bottom line with the dualistic God, you know? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a paragraph from your book that I want to read that relates to that as we go toward the end. This was just after, I guess, your memories had come back. And you say, along with this excruciating new awareness, I was also holding an incredible memory of life on the other side of death. That place, the place where what many people call angels had communicated with me and with each other, looked nothing like the mansions in the sky I had learned about in childhood. No streets paved with gold, no St. Peter ushering me through the pearly gates. A kindly old man with a white beard had not shown up to fill me in on my test scores in the exam I'd been calling my life. And yet I had experienced heaven. I had known myself in a state that not even the word bliss can describe. In that place, that state, I was not standing before God. I was God. Explain, because everyone's going to say, well, what an egotistical thing to say. Explain what you mean by that. God was in me. God was me. I was God. God was presence and fullness and oneness. And most of all, God was love. Um, pure, non-judgmental love. Mm -hmm. And in that state, it was not that I had suddenly been forgiven for my mistakes. It's just that they no longer existed. Nothing I had done on earth was being weighed and measured. It was simply the way my story had played out in this one realm. You have explored this to an excruciating depth. <laughs> yes, I, I've spent my entire adulthood doing this. I don't have children. I do have doggies now, but that's only two years ago I adopted them. But yeah. So let me ask you, for people who have, who either remember having had a near-death experience and don't know what to do with it, or for people who think they might have, but don't know how they might regain the a fuller memory of it, what sort of advice would you give them? I would say to them, when your body is ready, it will remember. There's a divine timing. And I think if you ask your body before you go to sleep at night and ask the angels, if, if there is something your body needs to remember, please bring that forward in a compassionate, uh, graceful way. Because if you don't, uh, sometimes it can just be jarring. You know, uh, so I would ask for help from the, you know, the angels, if you want to remember and your body needs to remember, but it's also, how are you treating your body today? How are you learning to love yourself today? Are you still shaming yourself? Do you still should yourself? Because if you're telling yourself, I should have remember, I should, that's all a shaming uh, energy and vibration that you're putting on yourself daily that keeps you down and depressed. So I would, I would do that. 
And then by being compassionate with your body and, you know, talking to it, it will let you know what it needs to know. You know, I used to hate my scars, you know, I used to be, um, and now I look at my foot and I'm like, thank you foot for being there. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. that's also my age and stuff, but it's like, you know, when I was younger, I tried to hide it. I didn't want people to think that anything was wrong with me, you know, uh, and that, that I'm not normal. Well, guess what? I'm not normal. This is, (laughs) this is the truth. You know, I, and I know of two other NDEs I had, and I was just rereading part of the book. um, And Dr. Stewart said that I had uh, coded going from the operating room, from my gurney being put transferred from my bed to the gurney to get to the operating room, my heart stopped. So I completely spaced out on that one until I reread it in the book, you know? So Mm. I was just, I don't know what to say (laughs) in the hospital. It was just so much pain and so much fear and so much terror. And you could several, the doctor, the nurse said, you could just see it in my eyes, you know, especially when I was on a ventilator and stuff that I just was terrified. And the terrification was that I was going to die again. One of the uh, good things that you encountered was the fact that you found a nurse, I guess she was a nurse, who, when you asked about the white lights that you were remembering, had the (laughs) insight to say, oh, that that was something else you were seeing, that she implied there was a a whole different thing that that was there besides, you know, the lights of the operating room or whatever. That was my doctor, actually. Oh, it was your doctor. Oh, so she had probably encountered other patients who'd had NDEs. Yeah, not to my level, though. She said, you know, when I came back and met her in 2008, uh, when we went into it, she wanted to know in more detail. And by then I had remembered so I could give her more detail. And she found it really uh, comforting to hear what I had to say, because uh, I I was a very, very sick woman for a long time and on life and death every day. And I think that fear of not knowing if you're going to live or die when you have been brought up with a certain uh, religion and then you have uh the pastor and your family uh, reinforcing that religion, you know, by coming to your hospital room daily to to do that. You know, I gave up on the pastor and finally just said, he's here for my mother, not me. You know, he's not helping me at all. You know, you've constructed your book around uh, those 10 common lessons from NDEs that Ian's published. And we've covered, I think the first four or five, I'm going to read these and ask you, First, for the people that might not connect with what I just said, let me read the first four. We do not die. Everyone who's listened knows that that's that was the message you were sent back with. Number two, love is all that matters and is the source of all that exists. And I think we understand that too. Three, everything and everyone is connected. How do you see that existing? We're all energy at our core The soul, when it leaves us, is this vapor, it's energy. And we, all the energies can speak to each other. And we, what what I'm doing, my energy field comes up against yours. We interact. And you can see that when you come up against someone who's really negative, that's a very obvious one. And you're like, whoa, you know, and sensitive people have to really watch taking on other people's energies and emotions. Um, 
because that can be easy for them to do and they don't even realize it. Number four, loving ourselves and others is the most important thing we can do. I think everyone, Gandhi, everyone says that, you know, kindness, love, but love in, if you take it from an emotion into an energy, those combined put love in a different category. If someone fails to develop any capacity for love, do you suppose there is, oh, I should ask you about this. Do you, do you think there's a hell or an isolation that we can face after we die? If we, you know, just out of our own free will, if we choose not to love? Um, I think that your soul, 99% of us, our soul goes directly up uh, to heaven. But I think for some people, uh, when they die, there is, um, I love the way Dr. Uh, Bloom, William Bloom talks about it as earth. And then there's like a psychic pollution around the earth of uh, accumulated, uh, uh, what I want to say, like war and uh, abuse and all these kinds of negative kind of things that people have done evil. And mm-hmm. their souls kind of wobble in that for a while before they go on. So I don't think theirs is a direct fast pass. Yeah. Number six, we are never alone. And when you heard the angels say, we want to help, but they have to ask us. Those are, you know, when we're feeling the most alone, that's probably when they're most accessible to us. If we only know to ask for their help. And it's a relationship too, Lee. You have to develop it, you know, and, and it's not just a one-time thing. It's like any relationship. You have to 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 work, not work, but do it daily. It's like I I love um, the uh, Lee Harris says about journaling. Ask your soul each day, what is it that you want to tell me? You know, just put that at the top of your journal and see what your soul start developing developing that relationship with your soul and communicating about what does it want to tell you today? And, um, and that has helped me start understanding what the soul really is and how that works with me instead of it just being this kind of thing over here or in here or whatever. Um, Because growing up, I heard the word soul, but it was soul food and soul music and (laughs) your soul was going to hell. That was about as much as I knew about your soul. So, um, you know, it sounds like the deep south. doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And and the good thing about we're not alone is, you know, there is a thin veil between this side and the next. And when we do uh, pass on, you have deceased loved ones and angels and all of them coming to you. So you don't die alone. You know, there may not be a human next to you. And I think that's this whole COVID thing is I didn't get to say goodbye or whatever, but you can still communicate with their spirit. They're not gone. And you can tell them things that you couldn't tell or whatever. You can still have those conversations. Mm. Now you have a protecting angel named James. Tell us about that. Okay, James, this is my military angel, and that may seem like an oxymoron, but uh, the military, like I said, is designed to uh, defend and protect. And I think he worked so hard to keep me alive because I really did want to check out, you know, up to four times. And he knew that I had the resilience, I had the perseverance, 
and that I was meant to do my contract, my my sole reason, my one of my purposes and missions in life was to come back to tell people this. And I had to survive physically to be able to do it. So, you know, he's been there to help protect me in instances where I could have easily uh, been in another car crash in Orlando as an Uber and almost, I don't know how it, I, we didn't get killed in, in a wreck there, but it, it just, you know, I've been protected and it's like, that's his assignment and different angels have different, um, there's like a, I want to say they have different jobs. <laughs> so, you know, I know that I have five angels around me and uh, most of us, all of us have at least a guardian angel around us. And then, you know, I think just depending on what you've been through, you have more, but you wouldn't have less than that. And um, yeah, so we're never alone. They're always there. And I, I love how they've come to me because they didn't come to me all at one time. You know, it's been over the years and it's nice to be able to say, okay, Serafino, what, what's going on here? You know, and, uh, and I, I hear things. So um, Claire audio. So it's messages that I hear. I don't, I don't necessarily see things. Some people do. So they're there to help, but you have to ask. Yes, indeed. Number seven, we are not judged. What about Hallelujah. The, <laughs> what about, uh, what about um, judging ourselves, though? We got to stop that. Okay. <laughs> we, we just got to go, no, stop that. It doesn't do you or anybody any good to judge yourself. You shame yourself is what you're doing when you're judging yourself. And like I said before, you know, uh, it's the mistakes, they no longer existed. You know, nothing I did on earth was being weighed or measured. So, mis- mis- quote, mistakes are for our learning. Okay. So, learn from it and move on and don't sit in a stew of judgment about it. You know, every single person makes mistakes because if we were perfect, why would we need to come down here and learn anything? That's right. That's right. Number eight, our true selves are perfect. And we are loved more than we can fathom. Yeah, I think that's why I didn't want to come back because I experienced an energetic, emotional type of love that I had never felt uh, on earth uh, up until probably now with my husband. I feel that. We will see loved ones and others when we return home. That's number nine. Yeah, but they're not going to be in human form. And I think we got to get our mind past that. You're not going to see your mother at age 80 or whatever, you know? So yes, your deceased loved ones, you will recognize them and they will be there. And you're not going to be saying it's not anything negative or what you did or didn't do or any of that. None of that transfers over. And then number 10 kind of reflects back on that question of whether we self-judge or not. During a life review, we learn how everything we said, did, and thought during our physical life impacted ourselves, others, and this world. Yeah. Well, I think that speaks for itself. I think that's why end of the year time, winter solstice, winter is a good time for reflection uh, of our life, you know, and to, to start looking, especially as we're getting older and mortality seems closer, um, people start doing a reflection of, you know, how do I want to be remembered or how am I being remembered? Um, and 
you know, I was only 19. So I had done everything I thought possible in terms of people pleasing. So I don't think there was much of a review for me, except to say, this is what you're going to have to go back and, and, and um, help people with. And first of all, you're going to have to get over it yourself if you're dying, and then you'll be able to help others. We have a few minutes left. Tell our audience about uh, neuroemotional techniques. NET, okay. It was a technique that my chiropractor did in Hawaii, and I could never understand why uh, I went to a GI specialist that I would have these belches. I sounded like a stranded seal, and it was embarrassing, and I, I just was like, what is going on here? So I went to see a Chinese herbalist. And she said, you need to see my husband because I think what's going on with you is emotional. And so the very first appointment with him, he nailed it. He said, this is your pituitary gland and you're filled with fear. And you've been in fear your entire life. And it's running your life. And it's not, you know, you're trying to put on this gray font, but basically your people pleasing and your fear are running your life. And it's causing you now to have physical symptoms that uh, it's my body's way of saying that I'm not on the right track. Um, I'm not expressing myself. So now when I get that, I know that I'm suppressing an emotion or that uh, I'm going off track in some way. So uh, that has resolved it. It wasn't medicine because I got on medicine that didn't help. And so I think some of these things that we go to the doctor for and come back and say, there's, there's, they didn't find anything in the labs or the test or anything, but yet there's something physically wrong. If you don't start dealing with um, um, repressed emotions and we all have them. And if they're, your life is not going in the right trajectory, it will force you to start having to look at other options, you know, if you truly want to get healed. And there's a difference between healing and curing. And healing is not linear. Let me tell you that too. I thought if I did A plus B, then C would happen. And I think most of us do. We think if we go to the doctor and we take the right thing and it's going to happen. So I got into this through him and it worked so well for me that I went and got certified, but it uses acupressure points on your wrist and it uses kinesiology, which is the muscle testing. So you can do it with someone's, you know, arm or leg or whatever, a muscle, an active muscle. And then you, there's a bit of psychology in coordinating the, the emotion with the muscle. And you're not even aware because it's unconscious. We're running around with about one to 5% consciousness. And the rest of everything that we're doing is running on an unconscious program that we learned a long time ago. And that's where these belief systems are coming into play that are still running our life, but that are outdated. And we need to figure out we're sabotaging what we want in life by allowing those same tapes to keep playing. Mm. Well, you write in your book, releasing and realizing this truth has changed my story and hence my life. I have now totally freed myself of any blame or shame that I was in any way responsible for Nate crashing his car. I looked at my husband and said, why was I never able to connect these dots before? It seemed so obvious. I wasn't driving. So end of story, right? But the power my parents held over me ran my life. And I'm sure there are many people out there in similar situations. Because my dad was God. They, I could, I couldn't separate the two, you know, he represented, there's the heavenly father and the earthly father. And he represented that. And 
that's the way he raised us. And I think a lot of people get raised that way too. And I just couldn't bear to disappoint him or God. Well, I think we've come to the end of our hour here. <laughs> it's but heavy stuff. Isn't it? It, it is <laughs> certainly is. It certainly is. And you've dealt with it in such an amazing way. I mean, the, the fact that an eating disorder led you into all of the achievements you made in, in your job career working with wellness. Yeah. Is, it's just amazing. You know, you talk about taking a lemon and making lemonade. That's very admirable. And I'd like for women to know and men to know, too, that it is a lot more common than you think because our culture puts such an emphasis on physical beauty that I don't think there's a woman out there who hasn't had an issue with her uh, with food and her body image um, based on what the expectation of society and certain people are. Mm. So a lot of people can get through it, but a lot can't. And as long as they're busy and uh, uh, they don't have to think about it. You know, if you're busy, if you're drinking, if you're using in some way, shape or form, then you don't have to really think about the pain, but it, it really is there for a reason. And it's showing up in your life to heal something that is really painful. Well, thank you so much. Nicole, tell the listeners how they can find your website and your book. Okay, you can find me on Facebook, Nicole.a.kerr, and I'm on Instagram, same Nicole.angelique.kerr, and I'm on LinkedIn. And those are the only three social medias I can keep up with, Lee, because I'm so I'm a solo, <laughs> solo person here. So those are the three, uh, Nicole Kerr uh consulting on LinkedIn. And then my book, uh, You Are Deathless, um, a near-death experience taught me how to fully live and not fear death is on Amazon. And it's also on Barnes and Nobles and you can get it at some independent bookstores. So um, it's, it is distributed. You just have to place an order through them. But my hope is, is it helped to heal me to write it. And I hope it can offer some effective um, tools and hope for others out there. Very good. And your website that's active oh, yeah. too? Yeah, yeah. Uh, www.nicolekerr, all one word, N-I-C-O-L-E-K-E-R-R.com. And you can contact me through the website uh, if you want. And also I'll send you a free sample chapter, the first first chapter. And also if you have a book club and you choose my book, I will zoom in if it's uh, a time zone I can accommodate. And I'll sit in on your book club discussion for 30 minutes on a Zoom meeting. Oh, excellent. Very nice. Thank you, Nicole, for sharing your story and your uh, belated NDE, 20 years belated, and the wis- all the wisdom you've gained from going through this. For the majority of your life, this has been what you've been dealing with, and you've dealt with it in a remarkably sane way, I would say. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> much. Um, you know, it's it has been a total transformation, and it's led me to become... I think the being that I was created to be, and I'm just so grateful that I can now say that because there were so many times that I didn't think I wanted to stay on this side and continue it. Yeah. Well, the message, you are deathless, the title of your book and the uh, job you were given during your NDE is like a primary importance to let people know that life goes on, it goes on and goes on and goes on. Yes, it does. (laughs) You are amazingly. I've enjoyed chatting with you. I really have. This has been great. (laughs) 
If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 480 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>